Good morning, everyone, and those who are online as well. So glad they can join us here. Um, AB team, I may need you to do the backup slides, okay? Because my computer is not working. So you will just follow on. I'll cue you on, okay, Ken? Um, so today's topic is really, really challenging uh, because it's and it's not an easy one to preach because it's talking about disciplining okay, and discipline in church, right? Uh, Christian discipline, actually. So uh, there's so much background that is not visible from the text itself, and it's easy to misunderstand just by reading scripture alone. I'll do my best, and you let me know if the sermon makes sense okay, after uh, the whole thing, right? But let me just start with a simple scenario to frame the problem for us. Okay? Now imagine... You are a new hire to offer. You are a new hire as a librarian to a very private and exclusive and expensive library. Just remember that, okay? You are a new hire. Now, usual rules to follow, but the greatest golden rule is set by the owner itself. It is to be quiet in the library. That's the golden rule. Quite obvious, right? So as you start your work, now the users are nice, they are okay, and soon you get to know who the regular users of the library are and eventually begin to develop a friendship with them. And you even have meals and fellowship with them after work. Now they are very nice people, and most importantly, they are really loyal and sincere. Now as time passes, the friendships grew and Comfortable conversations take place, but the problem is they also take place in the library where the golden rule of silence is being displayed. One day, news from the grapevine rumored that the boss is in town. Again. But it's been two years since the boss dropped in uh, to this small library. But besides, the rumor might not be true anyway. So you share this with your friends in the library and say, okay, okay, let's be serious about this, multiple times. But they assured you, relax, be chill, right? They are also very seasoned users of this library. Now, three questions for you, okay? I want to do Slido, but no time, so never mind. Then now, okay, okay. Uh, so raise of hands, okay, just a poll. What will you do if uh, you are the librarian? Okay. What will you do if you're a librarian? Will you let them be? Raise your hands. Okay. Will you drive them out? Raise your hands. Aye, aye. Do nothing. And not eh, like that, right? See, wow, so challenging. Okay, maybe I ask a different question. Eh? If you are the boss, what will you do to the librarian? Will you fire the fella? <laughs> hey, hello, are you all here or not? Eh? <laughs> okay, one hand out of the multitudes. Okay. Hmm. Now, if you are the boss, now what will you do? To the users of your library, okay, who are loyal, long-time subscribers, will you 
Chase them out. Will you do nothing? Hey, I don't understand that here. Oh, y'all do, ah? Uh? Join them? How? <laughs> right. <coughs> yeah, no help at all, huh? Okay, now, now can you see how challenging this sermon is? Okay, uh, you know what I shared? If it's just secular work, right? You, you can already see the difference in opinion. Actually, many of you don't have even have an opinion. Actually, I don't know what to do, right? Correct? But when it comes to church, it's even more challenging, right? Because we, we're talking about relationships, trust. But we also need to talk about values, our beliefs, correct? So, this is what today's sermon is all about. It's about discipline in theory and in practice. So we're talking about you know, why we need to do it. Uh, what happens if we don't? And uh, along the way, I'll develop a theology of Christian discipline or church discipline. Although it tells, talks about church discipline in this chapter, I hope that, you know, let me say, guide, I hope to give you something that guides us through the execution, which is the practice. Let me say this, there's no one way of doing it that's right, but I can offer a framework to consider so that it helps us execute and to develop the best way to do it. Okay, so the principles are important. So this is a church, although this is church discipline, the principles can be applied anywhere else in home, families, or any place under Christian leadership. It's so challenging. Let's go to God in prayer. Come, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are wisdom and you are truth, yet you are also love and mercy. Help us to understand the need and approach to church discipline and may the words of my mouth be clear and the meditations of all our hearts here be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, now let me get up to speed where we are. Okay. Uh, just a little bit of background. And the first Corinthians is actually a first generation church, right? It's talking about Paul is writing to the first generation church, consisting of first generation converts. Now a large portion of the church were actually Gentile converts that joined the church when they become Christians. They had former ways of lives. They were associated with paganistic worship. So Apostle Paul actually spent one and a half years in Corinth and founded this church before leaving to Ephesus. And four to five years had passed. And he heard disturbing news that the church isn't doing well. Now let me say this. The Greek culture was known for their idolatry, their divisive philosophies, the spirit of litigation, which is like freedom and reason. Now, it's very strong, right? So they, they, they reason about their freedom. So that's Greek culture and the rejection of a body, resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection at all. This is Greek culture. Now, Corinth itself is also infamous for their sensuality and their sacred, sacred prostitution. Many Gentile converts would have had some of these lifestyle. And you wouldn't be surprised that it's creeping into the church as well. So the first Corinthians, the letter to the first Corinthians, okay, is a pastoral letter written to the leaders of the church to address many issues. Now, how do you teach leaders or address or tell church leaders that may not even recognize your uh, or know their founding leader, you know? So many of these leaders may not even know who Apostle Paul is. And that's why they are divided, right? And how do you teach them to exercise discipline, especially in a paganistic culture? 
that is not just tolerant, but also embracing of a licentious lifestyle. So Apostle Paul spent four chapters informing them that chapter one, right? Okay, informing them that their wisdom and their arrogance, you think you're so smart, actually resulted in division of the church. See, instead, God's wisdom, Jesus is God's wisdom, brought uh, healing. Uh, he was being broken for the church to save the church, but it brought healing and unite the church, unite all believers together. That's Jesus. But the Corinth church managed to reverse it, you know. In the name of their wisdom, break the church. That's chapter 2. Can you sense my sarcasm, right? right? And, and many of them even rejecting the leaders. And Paul had to write to correct their false view of church, right? Uh, and ministry and to inform them that you know, leaders are servants too and sternly warn those who seek to destroy the church. You see, all are Christ and all belong to God. And that's chapter 3. So in chapter 4, today's chapter, Paul shared with them you know, the role of his apostleship or the role of apostles and how God used apostles to plant churches. Apostles battled through pervasive culture to pioneer and plant churches. How laboring, persecution, suffering in hunger and thirst, being beaten and being homeless were the cost of discipleship and the mark of apostleship. And that allowed the, 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 the suffering actually allowed the Corinth church to enjoy their status and wisdom because of what the Apostle Paul went through. Corinth have a status. So instead of being proud, arrogant, okay, uh, and rejecting Paul and his authority to rebuke them, they ought to know better. If you are so wise, then you should also listen to my teaching. That's what Paul says in chapter 4. So essentially, I've summarized four chapters in just five minutes okay, for you. Uh, I wouldn't do it. Go and read it. And now, let me say this. Okay? Here is the start of the, a theology of Christian discipline. Just as chapter 4, let me bring to you here. It is important for us to note this. Number one, establish a relationship of sincerity and authority before disciplining. That's what Paul did. See, no point scolding people if people don't regard your relationship or respect your authority. They're not going to listen to you. Your school also know you, right? Paul also know that. Now you need both. You need a relationship. You need sincerity. People need to know that you are sincere and you are for their good. And they need to respect your authority. These are the two that comes hand in hand. And so what did Apostle Paul did? Apostle Paul spent four chapters out of 15 chapters, four chapters to build his case, to establish his apostleship, and he showed how sincere he is to, uh, to reach them before moving to the problem. Now, I won't go into details of what happened. You read chapters 1 to 4, you'll learn that, but that's how the approach is. And having shared his sincere love and establishing his own apostleship with the church, he now goes on to the next problem on church discipline. Now, there are three disciplinary issues. We are starting this one first here, incest, and then there are two more, lawsuits and sexual immorality, uh, immorality, uh, we'll deal with it today. We'll deal with the first one. The next two, if I'm not wrong, they're for next week. So let me read the first Corinthians chapter 5 and, ex- and explain along the way, okay? So verse 1, it says, it is, re- 
it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that, is, that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone in the morning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? What's the problem here? The problem here is incest. A man or a son is having an ongoing relationship with the wife of his father. Okay? Now, according to the scholars, let me say this, huh? okay, just to explain the background. Now, this is not a one-night stand, you know. It's not a one-time hit. But the language that Paul was alluding to, it was actually a live-in, enduring sexual relationship. It, is unli- it was unlikely that the woman was actually the natural mother, likely a stepmom. See, nothing was said about the father, so we don't know if the father was deceased or divorced. But we do know that both Jewish and by pagan, uh, by Jewish and pagan account, prohibiting of father and son with the same woman was strictly forbidden and condemned. So that's a fact. Okay? Now, the woman was not mentioned, which was actually very rare. Because usually the, the, the woman is being attacked. But in this case, Paul singled the men out. It means that the woman was probably not a member of the church, but the man was. And the problem here is incest, of course. And apparently, the guy isn't shameful at all about it. If something like that happens in church, let me say this. You'll be shocked today if it happens even if it's a lesser problem, right? Let me tell you, if I, imagine if I tell you I have, I've been stealing Bible from the church. You'd be shocked, right? <laughs> no fun, okay. But you'll be more, sh- will you be shocked if I tell you I've been doing that for the past 20 years? Although I've been here for six years only. That's how shocking. But here's the next level. The real scandal isn't just a scandal. Imagine if I tell you that Pastor Ray knew about it all along and didn't do anything. <laughs> anyway, that's not true. Huh? Just an illustration, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Bibles are before you. Okay? Now, um, and that's really the issue why Paul was so upset. Apparently, the leaders knew about the sin of the, this Corinthian church, this man in the Corinthian church. And instead of going to mourning, of being ashamed, and, uh, and that something like that happened, the leaders were not remorseful at all. They're actually proud to the extent of boasting. And scholars reason, possibly, this man could be an influential person. Well, that could be a convert, right? Convert. Uh, since it was cultural norm in society, right, the pervasive culture, maybe the woman was a former prostitute. So having sex with her before he was converted wasn't an issue because everyone accepted it outside of the church. And maybe, okay, this was before the father married the girl. But apparently the behavior persisted after conversion. And because it's been a while, it's likely that the man could have been someone prominent, unlikely to be a leader, nonetheless influential, 
maybe well-known in secular terms, but now claims to be a believer in church, and maybe even serving. Now, whatever the reason was, leaders failed to address the discipline. So let's see what Apostle Paul says about this. Okay, Verse 3, let me read. For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I'm with you in the spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's harsh. So without commentaries, let me say this. It's hard to understand what Paul was saying. Instead of being puffed up and doing nothing, Paul says action must be taken in the presence of the church and the power of Christ present. Now some of us may ask, who are we to pass judgment on what's right and wrong in church, right? Like just now, nobody want to raise your hand. I can see already, right? Correct. Well, bro, the thing is, let me say this. Judgment has already been passed by God. This is definitely sin, unacceptable. Even the pagans reject. So not to exercise discipline is equally guilty, equally wrong. So a few more principles here to build our theology of church or Christian discipline. God regards sin seriously. So should the church. God regards sin seriously. All of us ought to. See, God sees your character, your holiness and moral conduct more important okay, over your sacrifice, your service. Three verses here. You can look it up. Uh, first, first Samuel 15, um, uh, there was a question asked. Okay, uh, Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offering sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of the, of the rams. For rebellion is like a sin of divination and arrogance is like evil of idolatry. And Jesus even scolded the religious leaders in Matthew, saying that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And he continued to tell everyone, if you love me, you will obey what I command. John fourteen fifteen. So be very serious about sin, everyone. Deal with it relentlessly. And the next point, let me say this, God holds the church and leaders accountable for the moral conduct of the church body. God holds all of us accountable for our moral conduct and the moral conduct of the church. Be spiritually mature. You see, our standards of moral righteousness is different from the world. And just like the Corinthian church, right, that has a different culture, See, what's acceptable in society isn't necessarily acceptable in church. All leaders, and I'm talking to you leaders, okay? just because you're not leaders doesn't mean you're not equally accountable. All of us too need to be aware and mature, be mature in our spiritual wisdom. We all need to know what is acceptable to God and what is not. When we gather God is in our midst and we are all accountable to God about our holiness. 
Next slide, TV team. Let me say this. Don't know, uh, never read Bible, don't know is not an acceptable excuse. You cannot go to God next time, sorry God, I don't know these are your laws. Your word down there, I never read. I don't know. Not an excuse. You can try. It's going to be a tough one, okay? So Paul says, pursue spiritual maturity. Grow in your biblical literacy and your relationship with God. You need to be mature. God holds us accountable. Exercise discipline when necessary. So what does this harsh sentence? Hand this man over to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be safe on the day of the Lord. Okay, there's a sentence there. What does it mean? Okay, what does that mean? Now it sounds harsh. Okay, next slide. Okay, now see the one on the next slide. Hand this man. What does this mean? It may sound harsh, but here's what Paul is saying. The next point. Church discipline. It's actually God's saving grace for us. The goal is always towards repentance and restoration and never destruction. You see, Apostle Paul has a theology, a certain theology of flesh and spirit. Let me explain to you. When he uses that sentence, he's saying this. See, the flesh is often associated to being carnal. What points us to destruction? And spirit is what points us to God, right? So Paul sees Satan at work tempting the flesh towards destruction. But being in church is where the Spirit of God works. Paul still desires for all our souls, especially the soul of this man, to be saved. Paul yearns for him to be saved. But how? But how? How, right? Uh, now, um, I found a quote, and this is to help us understand why Paul uses this method. Okay? So Ben Wetherington, a very respectable uh, Wesleyan New Testament scholar, wrote this, and let me quote. See, Paul is not suggesting that uh, he be turned over to Satan for destruction. This is actually an idea that is quite foreign to Paul and the rest of the New Testament, but is being excluded from the Christian community with its life in the Spirit. Now, you see, he hopes that this shock therapy, this, uh, the expulsion of this man, might douse his sinful inclination to shame him, in which the Greco-Roman culture was often thought as a fate worse than death. There were, because there was no other ecclesia or church community in Corinth, so this action would almost seem to be effective if the man wanted to remain a Christian. Understand? Because there's no other church, right? So, expulsion of this man hopefully will trigger him. He has no way to run, right? If you want to be safe, only the church can provide that. So hopefully that convicts him to turn around, repent, and to be restored. The goal is always towards the person repenting and restoration and never destruction. So let me say this. Never execute discipline without love for a person towards restoration. Never. Never discipline out of hatred or bitterness, but always out of love. Okay? That's what Paul says. And let me say this, uh, there are people who ask me, so, pastor, I, I've received this request before. I know that there are people who are living in sin. Why don't you just drive them out of the church? Who here guilty of being 
of having sin in your life, raise your hand. Wow, oh, so many perfect people. Ah. <laughs> Do you know that dishonesty is also a sin, right? <laughs> okay, okay, never mind. Okay. Then we all have to be purged, right? So that's not the issue. Let me say this, okay? Expulsion will almost definitely not work today. Why? Because we are not the only church. Eh? A person can run to another church and continue in sin, right? So it doesn't work. The goal is to restore. So how do we do it and what happens when we don't discipline? So let me can carry on, okay? So this is what Paul says. Your boasting is not right. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover land has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See? Right? Got it? Right? So what happens when we don't discipline? Let me say this. The lack of discipline stumbles and corrupts the body of Christ. You see, Paul uses the example of yeast that is familiar with the church. Let me say this. Yeast is a foreign entity introduced to, uh, to unleavened bread to make it rise, right? Now, today we manufacture yeast as good bacteria. But let me say this. In the olden days, how they make yeast... Uh, was not from scratch, you know. It was from the dough of the previous week. They pluck out and they leave it to ferment and it's introduced into this week's dough. Okay? Uh, so the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, once a year they celebrate, was actually a health provision because it breaks the weekly cycle for the year. Imagine you pass on, pass on, pass on for one year. Leh. So this was a health provision for them to minimize the risk of widespread contamination that will cause the entire community to fall sick. Paul is saying this. Sin is like that. If you don't address it within the community, if you don't get rid of the old yeast, evil might spread throughout the community until everyone gets infected. I came across this quote that is often attributed to John Wesley, but I don't think it's him. It's one of those things that John Wesley probably never said. Okay? Uh, I can't find the primary source, but if you can find it, let me know. Um, I think it's helpful for illustration in this instance. And this is what it says. What one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And I think it's true for this purpose of illustration. If sin is not addressed in the body, those weaker in faith will be stumbled to believe it is actually acceptable. And then what happens? No wonder the church becomes divided. Because some people want it addressed. Some people say, why are we condoning it and their affections? And this is exactly what happened to the church in Corinth. Never take sin lightly and deal with it. Finally, let me close up with what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning... Uh, I'm not referring and not at all meaning to the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. You know? In that case, you would have to leave this world. But I'm trying to write to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is a sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such 
people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So expel the wicked person from among you. Very harsh. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. Hold disciples and believers accountable for their spiritual lives. All of us here, we need to be held accountable as believers for our spiritual lives. See, Paul isn't saying that we completely disassociate ourselves from all sinful people, you know, because it's impossible, right? No one is perfect, and they're all over the place. They're outside also. In fact, he's saying the very opposite. That's why he clarified. He's very open to associating with the swindlers, the adulterers. Paul himself spends time in the marketplace, just like Jesus, spending time in the ministry with the poor, the marginalized, and many of them could be prostitutes, slaves, and even adulterers. You see, if we are not to associate with them, then we have to be out of this world, you know. The church should always be open to them so that they can encounter the love of God through our warmth and holiness. And we trust God to use our holiness and love towards them to convict their hearts to repentance. Right? That's how it is. Now, the public ministry of the church. Next slide. So the public ministry of the church, our worship services is where we are open to unbelievers, open to the public, right? Our worship is where, it's really where an unbeliever or a public person can come in and encounter God. It is this public space. We can tell them, and we don't need to be ashamed to tell them this is what we believe, this is what the rules are, okay? And we have to. This is the cost of being a disciple. And the choice is theirs. But once uh, once someone make a choice to become a believer. They cannot remain like that. We must disciple them to let go of their sinful lifestyle. So Paul was saying this, we need to be strict with those who profess themselves as faithful believers and disciples, especially those who choose to indulge continually in a sinful lifestyle. Paul is targeting this. It's not so much okay, uh, to have nothing to do with them, you know, but to take action to address their sin. Because God already judges what's right and wrong. As church leaders, we need to teach, uphold, reinforce the discipline of good and evil in church. You see, if it's outside of the church, that's not our business. That's God's business. God will deal with them. But if a brother or sister is our member, let me say this, we need to exercise stewardship and discipline. And that's what Paul is saying. So in the case of the Corinthian church, Paul urges them to expel the wicked man among you so that he can be saved. Now let me say this, this is also applied only, this is only applied as last resort for uh, for if the unrepentant, uh, willful, professing believer, okay, after all means have uh, has been exhausted to reason and restore, okay, if the person still refuses, if the person repents, uh, good, right? But if not, let me say this, maybe the lesser of the evil might have to be to save the rest of the flock, and we pray that this person will value his salvation over sin. 
Is it harsh for Paul to say that? Let me say this, okay? Now, William Barclay, a very loved pastor and scholar, said this, and let me close with this, and I'll quote, so that it helps to explain this. And he says, There are times when a cancer must be put out. There are times when drastic measures must be taken to avoid infection. See, it is not the desire to hurt or the wish to show his power that moves Apostle Paul. It is the pastor's desire to protect his infant church from the ever-threatening infection of the world. That's why he is suggesting expulsion. So that's it. Here you go. Hopefully I explain chapter 5 so that you can understand this. Okay? And like what I said earlier, expulsion is only a means applicable then as last resort, but we are to explore all means possible because obviously today it doesn't necessarily uh, restore or point this person towards repentance. Okay? So as I said, here you go. This is a simple theology of church discipline. In theory, hopefully it helps you to guide a way, a practice to love and disciple one another. Establish a relationship of sincerity and authority before disciplining. God takes sin seriously, so should be as the church. God holds church leaders, all of us, accountable for moral conduct of the body uh, within of the church body. So we have to be spiritually mature. Church discipline is God's saving grace, and the goal is never to destroy, but towards repentance and restoration. You see, lack of discipline stumbles and corrupt the body of Christ. And remember, okay, we are to hold ourselves, believers, accountable for our spiritual life. May the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and guide our practice to love and discipleship of one another. May you take sin seriously in your life and deal with it as part of real faith, real church, in our whole community. Let us pray. God, we know you take sin seriously. So serious that you turn your back on Jesus when he bore all our sins. But because of your great love, that judgment was for our restoration, not for our destruction. Help us, Lord, to understand the necessity of discipline when it comes to sin within our body. Grant us wisdom and boldness to confront sin with love so that the church will shine in love and purity for you. May we understand this precious truth and be faithful and responsible in our Christian faith and discipleship as we love and serve you and serve one another in church. Help us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen, Amen, Amen.